According to the census, 34% of U.S.-born Americans hold a four-year college degree. Given that the population of the United States is over 300 million, uh, doing a little bit of napkin math, that turns out to be a lot of people. If you're a college graduate currently in college or undergoing the application process, then you're already aware of the ruthlessly optimized nature of college admissions. To get into America's elite schools, it's no longer enough just to have good grades and a nice letter of recommendation. These schools get thousands upon thousands of applicants with a 4.0. That means if you want a place in the matriculating class, then the race is on to differentiate yourself as fast and as severely as possible. For some kids, this comes in the form of taking up an astronomical amount of extracurriculars. For others, it might mean writing a book or starting a business or playing an obscure sport that's sure to catch the eye of the admissions board. But there is one section of the application that matters more than most. The college essay can hold the most weight in determining your future school. So this week, I'm going to talk about notions of white victimhood and how the overwhelming pressure of the college essay leads to the commodification of trauma. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 73, 500 Words or Less. Hidden History is always available on www.hiddenhistory.show. And if you like what I do, then subscribe to the show on Spotify, review it on Apple Podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter, at H-I-D-D-N History Pod. So, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, but I just felt compelled to talk about this topic because last week, uh, you know, due to the pandemic, I had my college graduation online, which was interesting. You know, that's not really how I had imagined it would go down, but I suppose I'm now a college graduate. But because of that fact, it's been a while since I've had to apply to college. Just now, I was looking for some cover art for this episode, and I just image-searched college essay, and good lord, everything there stressed me out. I feel like it's safe to say that when your top hits for the term college essay are 1. Guides on how to spot a professionally written essay, 2. Articles about how broken the admission system is, and 3. Ads for college essay consulting. Well, I think that means that something went wrong a little while back. So, where to start? Well, the college essay itself was born out of a curriculum shift at Harvard in the 1850s that eliminated a mandatory writing course. Hoping that they would still be able to admit students who knew how to write, they added an essay to their application. Not really an exhilarating story. But, um, there's more. Currently, there are around 517 schools across America that use the Common Application. And the story of the Common App, I would say, is much more interesting. 
So the tail end of the 1800s, private colleges only took students from private schools. Eventually, as we entered into the 1900s, that began to change. All of a sudden, America's elite institutions were absolutely inundated with applications. But surprisingly, college administrators weren't too happy with this new development, because they found out that if they admitted applicants only based on academic credentials, then they would end up admitting a lot of Jewish students. And thus begins the anti-Semitism problem on America's elite campuses. In 1922, Harvard would institute a quota system, saying that no more than 15% of the incoming class could be Jewish. Lowell, the school's president, said that the anti-Semitic feeling among the students is increasing, and it grows in proportion to the increase in the number of Jews. If their number should become 40% of the student body, then the race feeling would become intense. You see what he did there? Uh, it's, it's pretty sneaky. Uh, he blames the Jewish students for the fact that their classmates are frothy mouth racists. So Harvard continues to have a very problematic history with essentially everyone who was not a white male New England elite. But I wouldn't want that story to belie what was happening on other campuses. In case you didn't get the memo, uh, America is racist. So in 1919, before Harvard institutes their quota system, Columbia creates essentially what is the first modern college application. They ask questions like, what's your religion and what's your mother's maiden name, all with the end goal of keeping out Jewish students. Harvard, Yale, and Princeton saw what was happening at Columbia and decided that that was for them. They quickly created their own versions of the Columbia application. And those forms turned into the Common App. I would say that's not a very flattering history. But so how does that translate to the broader topic of this episode, the commodification of trauma? Well, that one's easy. To answer that one, we need to talk about the uniqueness of the white experience in the United States. There is a prevailing attitude among white people, and I can speak to its existence because I am, in fact, white. There is a prevailing attitude that being white in America is a normal experience, that it is essentially the baseline for the experiences of all non-white people. That idea couldn't be further from the truth. What it means to be white in America is intrinsically different from what it means to be non-white. Many white Americans will never be confronted with the means of oppression that are daily realities for other people. I saw a tweet the other day that I think put it very succinctly. The author asked, why do black kids have to understand racism at six and white kids must be mature first? So, can you kind of see what I'm getting at here? The Common App and other meaningful metrics for college admission, like the SAT, are all standardized. It's supposed to make them more fair. But the question remains, standardized to what? 
you know, I like to think that I let you come to your own conclusions on this show, but if you're thinking anything other than to the white experience, then you're incorrect. The Common App may have tried to put its days of discrimination behind it, but its existence as an all-encompassing package for college admissions means that discrimination is part of its DNA. If you're a college graduate or if you're currently in school, ask yourself, uh, in a given lecture, how many students there aren't white? Unless you go to an HBCU, then I'm willing to bet that your class is a supermajority white. Now, if the SAT and the Common App, through their standardization, had wiped out the racial barriers to college admission, then why is your class three-quarters white? But there is one part of the college application where a student's individual voice can come through where they're not reduced to a series of numbers or extracurriculars. And it's the most high-stakes portion of all, the college essay. As a result, students who have been institutionally oppressed by our dehumanizing system, well, they're given 500 words or less to get on even footing with someone who has been the beneficiary of that same system. And that institutional power dynamic then turns pain into a currency. Instead of serving as a small outlet to showcase the applicant's writing and creative thinking skills, when colleges ask you to talk about a struggle you've overcome, they're inviting students to share stories of potentially unhealed personal trauma for the sake of admission, and they know it. When students are forced to turn themselves into a brand in order to survive, everything becomes valuable real estate. The college admission process is just one of the many examples I've talked about on this show of how our society takes great glee in stripping the oppressed of their dignity. In this case, reducing them to traumatic stories of experiences that the majority white admissions board would never have to contend with. Now, what I've talked about in this episode is, of course, a symptom of a much greater problem. That being that America is a racist country with racist institutions. And so the question becomes, how do we fix it? And that is a stressful question, because there are plenty of solutions out there. But the global neoliberal order is currently preoccupied with driving us towards a cliff at full speed. But, of course, when talking about this, we need to acknowledge that this is an intersectional issue. That all the education funding in the world isn't going to fix educational inequity. If we want to create a truly equitable future for all of us, then yes, of course we need to increase education funding. But it doesn't end there. That doesn't solve the issue. We also need things like Medicare for All and a housing guarantee. We need to end food deserts. We need to eliminate our emissions in order to fight environmental racism. We need to eliminate standardized testing. And the list goes on. Of course, if I wanted to be exhaustive, then this episode would be hours long. 
But I'll leave you with this. We certainly have our work cut out for us. And the only way that we're going to be able to accomplish any of it is if we move past capitalism. As long as dollars hang in the balance, structural oppression will be a fact of life. Let's do something about that. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.